This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're staying cozy and warm and enjoying the beautiful fall weather. Fall is harvest time and the time to enjoy the fruits of your labors, especially in the garden. I hope you can look back on this past summer with satisfaction over all of the work you did in your native gardens. I know the birds certainly appreciate it. I have a special request for you in this episode. As you probably heard on the news, a flock of 1,000 songbirds was killed on October 5th while migrating south. They flew into the glass windows of a building in Chicago. The bright lights of the building, called the McCormick Place, drew them down out of the sky and right into the path of the glass windows. The next morning, the streets below were littered with hundreds and hundreds of bodies of dead birds. A sad and needless loss. And a situation that could be changed if enough of us make our voices heard. McCormick Place is managed by the Metropolitan Pier and Exposition Authority. The mayor and governor each appoint four of the board's eight members. Some of the exhibitors in this building have a long history of refusing to draw shades or turn off lights at the end of the day, resulting in the loss of many birds over the years. Please consider going to the link provided in our show notes and signing the petition written by the Chicago Audubon Society. This petition is urging McCormick Place to turn off its lights, especially during peak migration periods. It would also be helpful to send an email to the mayor and the governor. That email address is also provided in the show notes. Thank you for helping. And now on to happier news. Today's guest is here with exciting information. Rebecca McCabe is an avian biologist at Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in Pennsylvania. She is here to tell us how Hugger, the broad-winged hawk we are tracking with a transmitter, is doing on her southward migration. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to welcome Rebecca McKay back to the show. Rebecca is here today to give us the update on Hugger, our favorite broad-winged hawk. Will Hugger be the first broad-winged hawk with a transmitter to reach her overwintering grounds? Let's find out. Okay, and now I'd like to invite Rebecca McCabe back to the show. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me. Yes, all our listeners are very excited to hear about how the Broadwings are doing, in particular, our Broadwing hugger. So could you give us an idea of how the summer went? 
Yes, yes. Well, since we last spoke, I'm trying to think if your listeners got the tail end of migration, but I went back and was looking at Hugger's movements, and it looks like she completed spring migration on April 26th. And as she was coming up north, she migrated east of the Great Lakes, coming up through Pennsylvania, New York, and then headed into Ontario. And she settled down in Bracebridge, Ontario, and it's a heavily forested wetland area, which was really cool because we didn't know, if you remember, we trapped Hugger later in the season after she nested. So we didn't really know where she nested and if the area we trapped her was a pre-migratory stopover place or an area that she didn't nest in, but she went right back there and kind of settled down about a half a mile from where we trapped her at. So that gives us some indication that she likely is nesting in that area. Wow, that's remarkable that she got back so close to the original spot where you found her. Yes, yes. Yeah. So now what do broadwings subsist on up in Ontario food-wise to get through the summer? Yeah, so since there's lots of wetlands, they're definitely going for your reptiles and amphibians and small mammals and, of course, some small songbirds as well. Right. And these, they're also feeding to their young, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. What are the triggers for a broadwing that tell them, okay, it's time to get moving? Yeah. Weather is a huge factor with these soaring migrants. And it's really cool because we can see this at our watch sites and looking at count data. And we could see when broadwings are passing and their peak migration at different hawk watch sites throughout their range. But with the tracking data, it's really precise. We can see exactly when they're leaving their summer areas. And we haven't done this yet. And, you know, it'd be a bigger project because, you know, you have to look at weather at all these different dates and years and and regions to see how that matches up when these birds really start to move. And we can see, especially with Hugger and the Ontario birds, especially that there's this really short window, you know, of a couple of days where our tracked birds all start to head south. And so Hugger this year started, we unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of summer tracking data. So we assume she nested in that Bracebridge area based on locations that we had in April and a few in May and one in June. So we're assuming she nested there. And we did see that we know she started moving around September 8th and 9th this September when she started migrating. So... Now, I had some questions from listeners come in via email. One listener would like to know, when a broadwing female leaves her area to migrate south, do her young follow her? I mean, do they, do they fly together or is it separately? Yeah, so there's no indication that they're doing that, especially from our tracking data. If you follow along with our research and our Facebook page and our tracking maps, we actually have quite a few adult females that will do these pre-migratory movements and they'll take off and go elsewhere. Some of it's, you know, a hundred, couple hundred miles away from where they're breeding. And at our sites here, we've seen the birds, the females leave and that the young still hang around into August. So there's no indication that they take off and leave with the females. Which leads me to my next question. Another listener wanted to know, how much time does a broadwing parent like Hugger spend teaching their young ones how to hunt? We're finding that it seems to not be that much time, surprisingly. 
However, we have some, some of our observations show that the male may hang around a little longer and feed. And so this year, especially, I had a little extra time at the end of July and August. And although I wasn't following any telemetry tag birds here at Hawk Mountain, we have color banded birds and long-term nest sites that we've been monitoring since the project started. And so I wanted to go out and see how long the young were hanging around the nest area. And so I went out after they fledged, which is around that second week of July, they were still hanging around. Then I went towards the end of July and they were still hanging around. And I had some prey deliveries being done by the male because he was color banded. So I knew it was him. And then I went into August until the first and second week and they were still hanging around, you know, within not a huge far away distance, but like close enough to the nest. So there's definitely some indication that the birds hang around for a few weeks and learn how to hunt with assistance from the male and um, or possibly on their own as well. So I was just going to say, I'm sure hunger is a big motivator. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and then, of course, it's probably in their DNA, that prey aggression, what to go after to grab it and eat it. Correct. Yep. So yep. the combination of those two are probably very good teachers. I agree. Yes. Right. <laughs> Okay, so now what do we have in terms of datelines? When did Hugger actually leave her Ontario range and start heading south? Yes, so we don't have the exact date, but based on the movement data, I would assume she probably departed around September 8th or 9th. And she came down through southern Ontario into Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, made her way down through that corridor, which was really cool. And I am always blown away by this with the tracking data. Within 15 days, she was already out of the U.S. So she was moving through and made her way down past the Veracruz River of Raptors, one of their watch sites there around September 26th. And you can see, you know, the location and how they passed over that watch site. And then if you go to hawkcount.org, you can go to that watch site and look up their count data for the day. And so I did that. So the number of broadwings that passed the Veracruz River of Raptors watch site on September 26 was 20,000. So it was it's really fun to think about Hugger in a kettle with 20,000 other broadwings as they're passing through that region. That is amazing. All going over that spot all at the same time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is amazing. And and where is she now? So the last location we received from her was a week ago, and she was in Chiapas, Mexico, so the southern tip of Mexico. And so it's very possible that she is already on her wintering site in Guatemala, because that's not too far from where she wintered. And as you and your listeners know, the kind of tracking devices that we're using are really dependent on cellular towers. And so as birds start to get further south in more remote areas, we do lose contact with them occasionally. I'm still hopeful that maybe she'll she'll pop on in the coming weeks just to let us know she made it there and she doesn't go radio silence this early, but it's it's definitely possible that she is already on her wintering site as of today. Now, last year was interesting because basically we watched all of them streaming down together, all of the Broadwings with transmitters. Yep. Parker was, I think, in the top three to get down to the, the southern area, and then she suddenly stopped in Guatemala. But then a lot of the other Broadwings kept going further south, and some of them ended up at the top of South America, and some of them doubled back and came back up to the Central America area. What is your feeling now about Hugger? Has she found a great spot to hide out for the winter? I mean, do you think she'll end up back in Guatemala? 
I do. From our tracking data over the years, the birds have very strong site fidelity and will go right back to the exact same wintering site. Now, of course, we have seen with some of our tracking data as well that depending on what's happening on their wintering grounds, it's possible that the birds do have to move. Maybe there's a shift in the land cover, there's deforestation, maybe there was a forest fire. There's things that are happening in their environment that when they fly down there again and they go, oh, I'm coming back to, you know, my second home and the landscapes changed that of course they're not going to stay put if it's not ideal for them. So that would be my only indication that Hugger would would not go back to the exact same site is if something changed there in the landscape. So I'm feeling pretty confident that she'll head back to her her second home in Guatemala. Right, which is so interesting because as we discovered last year, she was hanging out in a fairly settled area. I mean, I don't know if you would call it urbanized for Guatemala, but it was a fairly well-settled area on the edge of a park, which has some human activity. So we talked last year about maybe she's picking off pigeons or something. Right, right. And yeah, and she was the one that stopped in Guatemala City in a in a park there and was just really great to see, you know, how important these green spaces are for these birds that really need them, especially when they're on migration or on stopover or just trying to get themselves to their venturing site. Right. Now, speaking of changes, weather and, and other events, did Hurricane Adalia affect broadwing migration in any way this year? Not that I'm aware of. Again, I would have to definitely look at the weather data and see. I mean, her flight path down, very similar to last year's as well. And so with hurricane season, we don't often see these birds shifting routes or anything like that. Possibly some would be taking a longer stopover, but I didn't notice any of that with our tracking data. Because I know federal fish and wildlife officials right now are very concerned with the flamingos that ended up pushed up to Wisconsin. Yes. Can you imagine flamingos in Wisconsin? They're still there. They still haven't migrated south because it's been so warm there. Yep. But they were pushed up there by the hurricane. And officials are really concerned that once the cold hits, that they're going to be in a lot of trouble. I know. I know. Yeah. I hope that they get the nudge, you know, that <laughs> that nudge to say, OK, it's it's no longer warm here. We've got to we've got to get out of here. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. Now, can you just give our listeners again the rate of travel for Hugger just so we have the number? Yes. As far as like how the number of days it took her to get down there. Basically, how many miles a day she's doing. Ooh, yeah. So that one, I'd have to do some calculations on that. It does vary, again, weather dependent for sure. And so it does look like when you look at her tracking map, that they were all, all the birds kind of started moving and Hugger wasn't quite in the lead until she hit Texas. And then it was just before around the 20th or 21st of September that she kind of like really took the lead and started to beeline it down into Mexico and into Central America. And so we found with some of our other tag broadwings when we did our analyses prior seeing that a lot of the birds will move sort of in that region of the U.S. at a faster rate and then kind of slow down once they start to really kettle up in these large, large kettles with other broadwings. And so conditions are different, right? Thermal strength increases the further you go south. And so, again, these are all just really interesting questions to ask and to compare with the weather data. But she definitely took the lead once she hit Texas. (laughs) Right. I had another listener question. They wanted to know, how much energy does a broadwing expend when they are migrating? 
Yeah. So just kind of knowing what we know about budios and soaring migrants, they're super energy efficient because they're using thermals. So flapping is energetically expensive, right? When you think about running in place or flapping your arms, that takes some energy. And so these birds have this incredible adaptation with their wings and their ability to soar that it's it's low energy. So although it's a long, arduous journey and there's other threats that they face, their actual flight abilities and the mechanisms they're using make it quite energy efficient. So things like storms and, and other things that might come up could cause them to exert more energy but from our tracking data and, and other observations, we've seen that broadwings do hunt on the wing. You can see them catching dragonflies. And then, of course, when they're on stopover, it's likely that they're also finding prey as well and having a little bite to eat on their road trip. Interesting, because dragonflies are also migrating in huge groups. Exactly. So they can just come down a few hundred feet, grab a dragonfly and come back up again to their kettle? Yep. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> seems like it's almost designed to be sort of a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I think so. And when you study the natural world and wildlife, you see so many of these sort of patterns and similarities in other species. And so although, of course, we're concerned and, and we want the best for these birds and the wildlife, they've been doing this for a long time. And I think they've kind of ironed out the kinks <laughs> in, some, in some of these situations. And so, so, yeah, it's really great to know that Although it's a long journey and although there's other threats that they're facing that are not natural, the natural part, it seems like, is safe and okay for them. So, Right. So as we wrap up here, another listener wanted to know, how long is the battery going to last in her battery pack for her transmitter? We don't know. <laughs> as you know, everybody has tech from their computer to their phone to their watches that there's a little bit of unknown with that. And, and we're guaranteed a year. And so the fact that we've got another migration out of Hugger, we are thrilled to see that. And we hope that she continues to charge that solar panel. And if we can get another year out of it, that would be amazing. But with this kind of tech, you know, the larger the tech, the longer the battery life. And unfortunately, that's just not the case for broadwings. They're, they're smaller birds. They're not like our large eagles or condors. And so they have to take the tiny tech, which is still developing and still improving with time. But I'm crossing my fingers and hopeful that we'll see her come back north again and, and get to follow her for another migration. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be wonderful to have tracking for her for another season. It would be absolutely wonderful. But, you know, I remind myself and I, rem you know, reminding your listeners that already we have such invaluable data from her that we can take this and expand on this. And with all the other Broadwings, we're learning so much, even with just a year or two of data. So this is still great. Well, Rebecca, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I know you're a busy lady. You've got lots on your agenda, including flying off to, are you flying to Veracruz? I am not. Lori is actually headed to Veracruz, and I'm headed to Albuquerque, New Mexico for a raptor conference. Ooh. So, yeah. That's great. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us and answering all the listener questions. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. And, and thank you again for your interest and your enthusiasm for hugger and support. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Rebecca McCabe for joining us today. You can track Hugger's progress and the progress of the other Broadwing Hawks by going to the Broadwing Hawk Project page on Facebook. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. 
Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye.